biology. 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 Hello and welcome to another episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. Today we start making our way through Module 8, Non-Infectious Disease. And the inquiry question, how is an organism's internal environment maintained in response to a changing external environment? And the dot point, construct and interpret negative feedback loops that show homeostasis by using a range of sources, including but not limited to temperature and glucose. All right. So if we take a look at that inquiry question and the dot point together, they overlap quite a bit. So maintaining an internal environment in response to external changes, and we're going to be using temperature and glucose as our example. So a good place to start here is by defining homeostasis and negative feedback and the importance in the body. So homeostasis can be defined as the maintenance of a relatively stable internal environment. And you can add in response to some sort of change or in response to an external change, or it can be an internal change um, because uh, you can have things happen internally and externally. Just be aware of that. Now, what is the importance of homeostasis? Well, there are many things that you can talk about here, but one good example is the function of enzymes because that crosses over with some year 11 content. Enzymes function more efficiently at set temperatures and pHs and substrate concentrations. And so that means that if your body is at an optimal temperature, pH and substrate concentration, the enzymes will function more efficiently and therefore you will undergo or you will metabolize things um, more efficiently. Uh, And that's what it's all about, maintaining efficiency in the body, optimal efficiency. A negative feedback, well, we usually talk about it as a negative feedback loop, but negative feedback in general is like a type of regulation that opposes the function of a stimulus or it opposes directly a stimulus. And a good example to give here is once again temperature. If the temperature increases in the body, we want to make it decrease. And so that's negative feedback. Now, one thing I could mention here is that I can see a potential crossover question here with content in Module 5, and um, they have used content before and mixed them up. In Module 5, you talk a lot about the function of hormones during pregnancy and birth, and uh, there are a number of different mechanisms that uh, use negative feedback in that uh, in those systems. So just be aware of uh, those crossover questions. It's, it's a really good idea to start thinking about the content in the syllabus as where can this also be used or can be found. And negative feedback is certainly something that I can see uh, being uh, put in combination with the content in Module 5. All right, let's keep moving through the content now. And The example we're going to look at is a negative feedback loop that shows homeostasis. And with a negative feedback loop, you want to follow the same series of steps and have an example for each of those steps. Now, I'll say the steps quickly and then we'll go through each one. The first step in any negative feedback loop is stimulus, followed by a receptor of some sort detecting it. Then we have a control center. Then we have an effector. Then we have a response and potentially a result. 
All right, let's go through an example now. And let's imagine that you uh, go outside on a very hot day. Now, before you went outside, your body temperature was at 37 degrees. Uh, but when you went outside for a while, your body temperature started to increase. Now, the stimulus here isn't going to be the environment itself. The stimulus, or what's going to set your body off, is the change in temperature. And so the stimulus in this case is going to be an increase in body temperature. Now, when there's an increase in body temperature, that's going to go to the receptors and be picked up. Now you have a number of thermoreceptors in your body, but the one that's going to be doing the detecting for temperature is the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus will detect the change in temperature. Now the hypothalamus is also in control of regulating temperature in your body. And so it will send signals to the parts of your body that will help to decrease this temperature. It will do that via a system of nerves and we'll actually add the nervous pathways a bit later. But for now, the message is going to be sent to an effector and an effector is going to be either a muscle or a gland and that's going to do something to oppose the stimulus. In this case, the stimulus was a body temperature rise and so we want to bring that temperature down. And so there are a few ways that we can do this. The first is change in the blood vessels. So because we're heating up, we want to lose more heat to the environment. We want to dilate our blood vessels, vasodilation. So that will bring more blood to our extremities, our face, our hands, and that will lose heat with the environment. The second thing we will do is sweat. And sweat or the production of sweat means that you will produce water on your skin that water will contain the heat from your body and it will evaporate away. It will carry the heat away from your body. And we call this process evaporative cooling. The last thing we will do is decrease the metabolic rate in our cells. And that's going to cause less heat to be produced. All right. And the last step is the response. And so what are all these processes doing? They're decreasing the body temperature. And so our response will be a decrease in body temperature. And the result, hopefully, is that we maintain our temperature level or we get it back to 37 degrees Celsius. Now, if you were to graph the process of temperature fluctuation in the body, you would notice that it goes up and down around 37 degrees. It is rarely ever at that exact temperature. And that's because it is hard to regulate our temperature given so many changes that occur but we do want to keep it within a certain range. So that's the uh, feedback loop or negative feedback loop for a temperature increase. If we take the other path and talk about a temperature decrease, we go through the same few steps at the beginning. So the stimulus, once again, let's imagine you walk outside and it's cold. The stimulus here is going to be a decrease in body temperature. Once again, we have thermoreceptors in the hypothalamus that are going to detect that change. The hypothalamus is also the control center and is going to activate our effectors to do something about it. The effectors in this case, we have four that we usually mention. Blood vessels once again. Blood vessels in this case don't dilate, they constrict, vasoconstriction. That causes less blood to go to the surface of our skin and therefore less heat to be lost with the environment. Our muscles shiver. Our muscles contract and expand very quickly, and that produces heat. 
our cells increase their metabolic rate. And finally, the hair cells that we have cause the hairs on our body to stand up straight and trap air or trap that warm air that our body is producing so to stop letting it go. The result of all these things is once again an increase potentially in body temperature and then hopefully a return to normal functioning. And so in this example, we've gone through stimulus, which is the change in body temperature, the receptors found in the hypothalamus, the control center, which is also the hypothalamus, the different effectors for the increase in heat and decrease in heat, and the overall response of these things. You need to be able to draw this and you need a good example of a feedback loop. I will put a good example up on the Facebook page if you want to check out the one that I use. It will help you out a lot if you don't have one. All right, let's talk about glucose regulation now. This one is a bit more complex and it's probably more complex just because of the terminology being used. We still have the stimulus and the uh, receptors and the control center. But like I said, some of the terminology is very similar and it makes it a bit more tricky. So let's start again at normal blood sugar levels. What is the function of glucose regulation? Well, we need to maintain our blood glucose at a set level in order for our cells to function optimally. And that range is, it can be quite broad in terms of like where it can be. And it also depends on what you've eaten. Um, but if it does go too low or too high or outside the acceptable ranges, once again, our body will counteract those changes. So let's start with a change in the blood sugar levels. And that usually comes about because you either eat something or don't eat something. So let's say that you eat a delicious cupcake and the cupcake is obviously full of sugar and that's going to cause a change in your blood sugar levels. It's going to increase them. And so our stimulus here is going to be an increase in blood sugar levels. Now that increase in blood sugar level is going to be detected by the pancreas. Our pancreas in this case is our receptor. And more specifically, there are cells within the pancreas that are going to be doing the detecting and regulating of that blood sugar level. The beta cells, B-E-T-A, beta cells in the pancreas detect and release insulin in response to an increase in blood sugar level. Now that insulin has a job of doing two things. And we're going to learn about a word now that sounds similar to another word. And so it's important that you listen to the distinction between them. The function of insulin is to turn that sugar or glucose into glycogen in the liver. And that means we're storing it. We're taking it out of the blood and we're storing it as glycogen. Think about glucose like a brick. You're putting a bunch of bricks together and calling it glycogen and then storing that in the liver. So you've got those bunches ready to go in case you ever need it again. Now the cells are also going to absorb some of that glucose. And that's what you need for respiration and other functions. But that sugar is going to be taken up by your body cells. And that is the function of insulin. It is causing your liver to convert glucose into glycogen. And it is causing your cells to uptake or become more permeable to uptake more glucose. Now, the result of that, or the response, is going to be a decrease in blood sugar levels and hopefully a return to normal. And so just to reiterate one more time, our stimulus 
after eating a sugary meal would be an increase in blood sugar levels. The beta cells in the pancreas detect the change and release insulin in response. Insulin acts on the liver to convert glucose into glycogen, storing it there. It also acts on the cells to allow them to be more permeable to glucose so they can absorb that glucose, take it out of the blood. The end result is that the blood sugar levels will decrease and hopefully we maintain homeostasis or those blood glucose levels. Now, once again, we have an opposing version where it can decrease. And so let's follow that one now. Let's say you haven't eaten for a long period of time. Your blood glucose level is going to decrease. And so you're going to have low blood sugar levels. That's not what you want. So the stimulus here has caused your blood sugar levels to be low. You once again are going to detect this in the pancreas. But here we have a different cell. Here we have an alpha cell. The alpha cell is going to be doing the detecting and the release of a new chemical called glucagon. Okay, so that sounds very similar to the previous two we've talked about, glucose and glycogen. But the alpha cells in the pancreas are releasing a chemical called glucagon. Now, just like insulin did, it acted on the liver, glucagon does the same thing. It acts on the liver as well, but it does the opposite. It converts that glycogen, those stored up bricks, back into glucose and then puts them back in your body and into your blood, increasing your blood sugar levels. So a decrease in blood sugar levels is the stimulus, which is detected by the alpha cells in the pancreas. The alpha cells then release glucagon, and that acts on the liver to release the glycogen and turn it back into glucose to put back into the blood. So I always say that glucagon wants to make that glycogen gone. It wants to get rid of it. It wants to put it back in the blood. It doesn't want it in the liver anymore. It wants it glucagon. Okay, so that's how I remember it. That's the order in which I remember where it goes. Glucagon uh, wants the glycogen gone from the liver. It wants it out of there and back into the blood. So once that's happened, the blood sugar levels should increase and then go back to normal. And we should maintain homeostasis and maintain that blood glucose sugar level. All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode, guys. And as always, make sure you check out STEM Reactor for anything you need uh, related to STEM at schools. And you can check them out at stemreactor.com.au. That's stemreactor.com.au. Um, also, if you'd like to help support the show, you can also buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Pod. 